Brilliant. What a time of worship. Who needs drums? That's what we've learned today. Uh, now, we don't do homework here, which is a bit of a pity, isn't it? Uh, but if I was going to set you homework, probably some of you have got that sinking feeling now, haven't you? But if I was to ask you, write an essay on the meaning of life, it'd be interesting to see what different people wrote. But some of you will just write it straight away and the swats amongst you will be like, oh, brilliant, and get on with it. But a key question you've got to ask is, who is it aimed at? Who's going to read it? What audience is it for? It could be used in front of the whole church, or it could be, say, for a group of 11-year-olds. And it'd be very different, wouldn't it, if you were writing for those... Well, actually, looking at some of you, it might not be, but anyway. Uh, imagine if you're having to write for the world's top theologians. Would you start getting your dictionaries out and adding some fancy words? Or if it was going to be published in the Mirror newspaper or The Telegraph, or The Guardian, or things like that, you would probably write differently. And we see this in the Apostle Paul's writings. Because remember, Paul wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament. And at those, that point, lots of word-of-mouth views about Jesus were circling, even those in those who believed. And Paul wanted to set down really clearly, in a logical way, what he felt the Christian belief meant. And in my Bible, it says that there's like a little introduction, and it says that uh, Romans is a book to Paul making it clear what the Christian life entails and trying to get those who read it 2,000 years ago to understand why this life is different to the Jewish faith or other religious experiences they previously had. Because remember, most of, well, the Jews, they were raised reading the Old Testament. Most of them would learn it. If you were educated there, you would have learnt huge chunks of the Old Testament, so you would know it. So a lot of the words that were given in worship today, they would know where it was. They'd be able to tell you chapters before, chapters afterwards, and they could recite it, no problem. But it's then trying to go, well, what does it actually mean for them? We are in our second part of our Roman series. We did that, some of it online, and with it we looked at different parts of this book. And Romans is quite thorough. And reading it straight away, some of you go, flipping heck, this isn't for 11-year-olds. And some of us can struggle with the detail. But remember, this isn't a dry book of theology. Massive historical revivals have been started by the studying of it. Augustine, Martin Luther and John Wesley, all massive heroes of the faith, would trace their spiritual renewals when things clicked into place to a reading of Romans. And remember that Romans wasn't divided into the neat chapters that we see today. But scholars have roughly divided it where they think things fit. And then people have said, well, it could go in these certain sections. Chapters 1 to 5, talking about the good news of the gospel of Christ. And then 6 to 8, look at how this gospel works out in a Christian's life. And then in chapters 9 to 11, we look at what, uh, how this links with the history of the Jews that we would find in the Old Testament. Then, in 12 to 16, he looks at specific issues and gives advice, a bit like a New Testament agony uncle. 
But as he was writing to the church of Jewish and non-Jewish converts to the Christian faith, he did not just want them to understand the gospel. He wanted them to love it and live it out. Not just have their intellect changed, their thinking, but their hearts changed, leading to real behaviour change and a real uh, living by the Spirit of God. And many months ago, we started to look at the gospel and it all being about Jesus. Then Roy helped us think about what is on the inside and Kev helped us look at themes of equality in Romans 3. Rachel explored righteousness, especially looking at Abraham and receiving of God's promises. And then we looked at what the benefits for us from Jesus' death and resurrection were. And finally, we looked at how Jesus brought our freedom for us and gave us the gift of eternal life. Now, when we were planning this as a teaching team, we said, right, we'll stop at the end of chapter 6 and then carry on in chapter 7. Actually preaching now, I'm like, oh, that's a right pest because it'd be really helpful because remember of things moving in. It'd be really helpful if we were bang on with Romans 6, but I know you all will be very scholarly, because, again, it links straight through. And so what we're going to do is just look at Romans 7 and see what it actually means to us and how that links and how it means going forward into Romans as well. Now, I don't know what you're like with food and drink. So if we were putting loads of food in front of you now, are you someone who rams it down your throat quickly because otherwise it will go in your household and you've got to make sure you get it? Or are you somebody who actually isn't that bothered? There are other things to be done. Or are you somebody who really takes time and savours each mouthful, the different tastes and textures it gives? And it has been written that the book of Romans is a book not to be digested quickly, not ramming in quickly, but savoured slowly and carefully. And for some reading, as we said, it could be more difficult than some books as Paul develops what he says and unfolds it using logic and reason. Remember, we encourage you not just to listen to our soothing voices on a Sunday or, or when you listen to it on a recording, because there's so much to be explored and discovered in the Bible. And especially these passages of Romans, actually, we can't cover everything in our short time together. I could have done the little sections I've split it in and done just one of those today or a few sentences. I could have done that in our brief time now. Remember, the great theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones said of Romans, it is one of the brightest gems of all. Someone has said that in the whole of the scriptures is the bright and most lustrous of flashing stone or collection of stones is the epistle to Romans. And then he says how chapter 8 contains the even shiniest gem. Well, we're moving on to that, looking at Romans 7. So in chapter 6, Paul started to look at why Christians still struggle with sin. Why don't we suddenly be able to stop doing wrong in a puff of smoke poof, when we become a Christian? And many Christians ask, if Jesus and his resurrection power has taken up residence inside of me, why do I struggle with those same old temptations? Why don't I love God more or love to pray more? Why do I struggle with things? Why does it all just fit into place? Tim Keller, who actually we're using uh, one of his books as a bit of a uh, help to help us go through uh, these chapters that we're doing, has an outline for this, uh, this passage that 
is really good. What he says is that verses 7 to 13 describe the battle we can't win. Anyone like Lord of the Rings? Yeah? Anyone find it really boring? Yeah? About half and half, actually. I'm a bit both, but the battles we love. And in the second, or I love, and in the second uh, film, there's a battle at Helm's Deep that looks like cannot be won. And everyone's like, oh, what's going to happen? And then suddenly things change. So 7 to 13 describe the battle we can't win. Verses 14 to 25 describe a battle we can't lose. And you're thinking, well, what about 1 to 6? You forgot that. Well, that gives us an analogy, a little picture that shows us how to make the transition between the two. So Romans 7, 1 to 7. And it should come on the screen. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and he's not an adulteress if she marries another man. So remember, that is a picture he's using to uh, help us understand something. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order we might bear fruit for God. For when we're in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, dying to what bound us once. We've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Remember, for those who encountered Romans, the book of Romans, 2,000 years ago, this would have blown their minds. They had an understanding of what they needed to do to become right with God. They knew that. They knew the law. They follow in it. And from sacrificing, performing certain rituals, not doing things and doing things, they would become right with God. Then they would slip up, but they could do those things again and make sure they were following the law, doing the rituals. Everything was okay. And there were those who were doing that in a very pure sense, who were following exactly what it said in the Old Testament, earnestly seeking God. There are others who were still doing that, but have been manipulated by religious leaders who made them reliant on the process because it involved them and made them richer, made them look important. But Paul, and his background was as a religious leader, he was all about keeping the law. That is what he practiced and understood. And then, boom, his mind was blown. Something was different. And remember us at the... This Romans 7, 1 to 6, and Tim Keller said it as well, is an analogy to help us understand what's going on in the rest of it and also what has gone on previously in chapter 6. So Ray Ortland says this, We were married to Mr. Law. Now, not my geography teacher, because that would be weird. We were married to Mr. Law. He was a good man in his way, but he did not understand our weakness. He came home every evening and said, So how was your day? Did you do what I told you? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you complete everything I put on your to-do list? 
So many demands and expectations. And hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. We could never satisfy him. We forgot things that were important to him. We let the children misbehave. We failed in other ways. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law always pointed out our failings. And the worst of it, he was right. But his remedy was always the same. Do better tomorrow. We didn't because we couldn't. Then Mr. Law died and we remarried, this time to Mr. Grace. Again, not from are you being served. <laughs> Our new husband, Jesus, came home every evening and the house is a mess. The children are being naughty, dinner's burning on the stove and we even had other, other things going on. And he still sweeps into, us into his arms and says, I love you. I chose you. I died for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And our hearts melt. We don't understand such love. We expect him to despise us and reject us and humiliate us, but he treats us so well. And we are so glad to belong to him now and forever. And we long to be fully pleasing to him, as it says in Colossians 1.10. Being married to Mr. Law never changed us, really. It's just the same old, same old. But being married to Mr. Grace is changing us deep within, and it shows. So carrying on to Romans 7, 7 to 13, the battle we can't win. Everything seems against us. So the law and sin, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. So those who suddenly think laws today, Phil's saying, yeah, we can go out, we can do what we like. We're not saying that. And remember the New Testament, it's linked from the Old Testament, what is saying, we need to understand God's word, it's still God's word going back. As Rachel said, we, about the, going from Egypt, all the things there, God telling us about who he is and how he acts in our lives. So, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. And did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death. So through that commandment, sin might be utterly sinful. So yeah, that, there's a lot of stuff in there. But what Paul is saying is there's a war that's going on inside the heart of everyone and those who follow Jesus Christ. And scholars have had big ding-dong arguments about, is Paul over this chapter... Uh, the rest of the chapter and going through is he talking about the general human spirit here or is he talking about himself and being a simple soul I take it as Paul he's been very honest about the struggles he's had and we'll meet we'll see more of that in a bit remember his background as a very meticulous teacher and follower of the law and now he's trying to work out how his old experience translates into his new understanding a struggle, a war, a conflict that goes 24 hours a day, seven days a week, year in, year out, again and again. 
And no one seems to come to a place where it's like, I don't struggle anymore. The war is over for me. Seems if you're a believer, there'll always be true experience that there are issues, there are problems, there are things that will go, I struggle with this. Tim Keller, again, provides a good understanding of this passage. All of this life is a battle between two selves. But there's a different war from when you become a Christian to the war that happens after you become a Christian. What Paul is trying to show us here, there's a war between the selves that what happens before you meet Christ and there's a war between the selves that happen after you meet Christ. The war between the selves before you meet Christ is a world without hope. You cannot win. The war after you meet Christ, you cannot lose. And it's very important to get in chapter 6, what Paul was trying to get again there was people were saying, oh, Jesus has died on the cross for my sin. Great. I can do what I want. It's an out, get out of jail free card. Now that's Monopoly, isn't it? I've only played it twice. But sometimes people think, oh, I can do what I like here. Doesn't matter. Well, that's not what it's saying in chapter six. And that's not what's saying here. It's saying we have a struggle going on. It's that war we cannot win. But there is good news carrying on. Now, when, once we start, 14 to 25, you look and go, is there good news? It seems the same, but let's see. We know the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. We've heard, haven't we, about no longer a slave to sin, child of God. We've sung that today. How does that actually work out in our lives? What does that mean in our soul? I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not, do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? But thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. One of the things Paul talks about here is he knows what to do. He knows what's right and wrong, but then finds himself doing the wrong thing and making the same mistakes. I find that Jack Clark rings me up and says, can you take me to a Warsaw game? And I think, oh, that'll be lovely. That'll be a nice day out. I go there to Stevenage, it's freezing, it's a boring game, the fans are rubbish, and it's like, what do I do? Then he rings me up again, can you take me this place, can you take me to Bristol Rovers? Oh yeah, I'll do that, over and over again, I make the same mistakes again. And still freezing, coming back like, oh, what's got, 
what's gone on, no joy in it whatsoever. And yeah, I've got that out of my system. <laughs> Somebody once said, Paul didn't watch Bristol Rovers, but he might have been a golfer. Because a golfer understands the principle of what he's saying in 15 to 17. I've marked it so you can see it on the screen. So any golfers here? None. <laughs> You've all got lives. Excellent. But So you've seen golf though, haven't you? You know what happens. So you line up a putt and you see because of the, the way it's the camera of the green, it's going to break to the right. So you hit it to break to the right, and it goes the other way. That which you would do, you don't do. You get it wrong. The thing you don't want to do, you do. It's the human situation. And as I said, at first glance, this passage seems as hopeless as the previous battle, especially between the wrestling between Paul saying what is right and not being able to do it. And when I did the kids' work at Junction 10 years ago, we had a simple mission statement that we were working with, that we would both know and experience God, that the kids we're working with would do it. And knowing and doing are two different things. You can know the right thing, and you can still do the wrong thing. And this leads us, and Paul, to make the obvious point. Knowledge will never save anyone. Knowledge alone will not save us. And a lot of Jews were thinking they knew everything about God, everything about the Old Testament, everything about the law. But there must be something else, Paul is saying, something deeper working within us. You see, the law, the knowledge of right and wrong is good, but it doesn't have the power to keep us from sinning. Even willpower is inadequate to keep us from sin. Now, I've done diets in my time, some more successful than others. Sometimes that willpower just goes, doesn't it? And you're like, you can just feel in your mind, kebab, kebab. And you're like, some days you're like, I'm saying no to you, kebab. Other days, what a good idea. You know, they're all lovely. And then you find yourself driving 15 miles to find the best kebab or something like that because you haven't got the willpower. And to be fair, a lot of laughing there makes me feel there's a lot of kebab problems here in the congregation. We'll pray for that later. But the thing is that willpower can work for some things, but often it can end up getting people frustrated. And the problem lies within our corrupt human nature, our sinful nature, which Paul introduces in chapter 7. I love those experiments they do with children where they leave them in the room with something that says, do not eat or do not touch. And then they're, they're either, they do it or they're really conflicted. They're like... You see them move forward and you move, see them move backwards. And there's, there was a lovely um, video of two uh, lovely young men who got Down syndrome. And they together, they were sitting there. And every time the one was going to the other one, go, remember, mummy said no. And then the other would try and remember, mummy said no. And together, they're... they're uh, with then uh, what their human will was able to survive, but most, and they did it with dogs, didn't they? Which I felt was really unfair, like leaving a treat for the dog and saying no, and then straight away the dog went, I'm going for that. But that's the thing. Sometimes we just like, 
I can't resist. And many people read Romans 7 and get caught up in the battle, the struggle, the things they don't understand, but they miss the amazing promise of victory here. Because how do we cope with sin and our sinful nature? Verses 24 to 5 say this, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are three H's here. Honesty, humility. That's what Paul's saying. I'm wretched. I'm in this body of death knowing the situation. I'm honest. I'm humble. Who's going to rescue? Him. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what's in conclusion, what's the difference between following the law or what Paul is talking about? It is following God's grace. I said at the start that verses 1 to 6 give us a little story about the difference between the old way and the new way that Paul is trying to explain. And Tony Evans says, when you walk into a house, you can always tell the difference between a grace dog and a law dog. I probably don't because I'm not great with dogs. So I'm probably cowering and thinking, does this dog smell? Does this dog bite? Does this dog leap? And I'm sort of doing an inner risk assessment in my mind. Um, But it says, you'll see that difference between a grace dog and a law dog. A law dog always has its tail tucked underneath. It is intimidated by its master, afraid. It knows that if it does something wrong, there's going to be a consequence. It's a miserable dog. But a grace dog's tail is wagging when its master comes home because there's a relationship there. Loves his master and he knows the master loves him. God wants grace dogs, not law dogs. And next week, Brother Jeff Clark is looking at chapter 8. And it brings some of the most famous quotes from the Bible. And that gives hope showing what Jesus did to combat sin. But I'd be remiss if I didn't finish by just creeping into chapter 8. Because as we enter Romans 8, Paul can say that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And remember, when there's a therefore, we have to ask, what is it there for? Thank you, Rachel. I didn't know we were at the pantomime, but it's excellent. And that's the thing, because of all what we've looked at, this isn't just separated because it's got an eight at the, and it's the new chapter. It's saying because of all this, all the struggles that you've got, if you're trusting in God, if you're living for Jesus and you've asked him into your heart, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The battle in our heart doesn't matter as much anymore because Jesus has won the war on our behalf. There will be skirmishes. There will be problems. There are people here who go, as you've been talking, Phil, I know the things that I struggle with, the things I don't want to do, but I do. But we also know that the victory in Christ is there. Can you stand with me, please? And the band, could you come up, please?